Jesus, your name is power. Your name is glory. It is the very name that the gates of hell shall not prevail. It is the very name that can break down strongholds in our lives. It is the very name that crushes sin. It is the very name that is the forgiveness and the remission of the penalty of sin. And we come in this place today, God, because you are worthy of that praise. You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of us dying to the flesh to live for your beautiful name, Lord Jesus, to live for your powerful name. To give our all for you, our heart, our soul, our mind. So I pray today as we worship you, that is our attitude, that is our, our spirit, our posture, God. God, we are never just to go through the motions in every day of life and breath that you give us. We have much to celebrate in this place today. The fact that we woke up today is a celebration. While we know that eternity is so much of a better place than the life on this earth, God, you still have work for us to do. And that's why we're here, to glorify your name and to change lives and to change this world. So, Father, we come here to give you the glory. We come here to sense your power and to know that you're with us and to know that, God, that we can prevail, whatever it is we face. So, Lord, today I ask for that attitude in our hearts. I ask for those in this place today, God, that are hurting. I know there are some here this very morning in this room. There's a physical thing that you are dealing with. There is some emotional pain you're dealing with. But God, today, you can take that away. You can take, and even God, if you choose not to take the pain away, we can know that you're with us. So Lord, may we sense your power and your presence today. May we know that there are others who care. May we know that you love us most of all, whatever it is we face. Father, may we be real and raw before you. May this be a place, Father, that we confess sin. And if, there, if you can't do it in the presence of you, God, in your house, then what does that say about us and our relationship with you? So, Father, in this place, I pray for that today. May there be repentance of sin in lives today because we cannot be freed and we cannot walk in the freedom of Christ living in the bondage to that. So we seek your forgiveness, God, today, and we seek repentance in this place. And I pray, God, that whether it be we fall on our face in our seats or we're at this altar, God, that we respond to your goodness today. Be with those hurting not here today and beyond, those watching Facebook Live and other ways, Father, that you touch their lives today. May they know that you are real, you are good, and you want nothing but the best for us. Let your word speak to us. Show, us. show us some powerful things about things in our lives that don't please you and how we're to respond today. May somebody today speak into our lives, but most of all you, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask it.
so glad you're here today, this morning, and uh, if you are our Highland students, some of you may have homecoming-itis uh, today. Uh, I will try to keep you engaged um, so that you don't fall asleep. If I throw something at you, it's because I see you asleep. I'm just kidding. I won't throw anything. I don't have anything to throw. That's why they don't let me have stuff up here. Man, it's good to be with you this morning. You know, we've been in this series, King David, and we're continuing that today. We've been studying about this man who lived some 3,000 years ago. And what we know from Scripture is David has a very uh, eventful life. Um, He's been through a lot, and obviously in a few short weeks you cannot cover his life. But we know that he eventually was a great man who served a great nation. He served a great God, and he did it with great passion. And if you have any doubts that this is one of the major players, if you will, in God's story and in Scripture, just keep in mind there's 62 chapters of the Old Testament that are devoted to him. And you also have about 60 references, at least, in the New Testament about him. So he is all through the Word of God. And even though he was called, if you've probably heard this before, a man after God's own heart, and was also became the king, when he hit middle age, somewhere around the age of 50, he did what we would say is one of the worst things that could ever happen. He had an affair. He had an affair, a one-night stand with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And rather than face up to the music, rather than make things right, he tried to cover that sin up. And in covering that sin up, it led him to have her husband, Uriah, murdered. And here's where some people don't connect the dots. It was almost a year went by before David dealt with this. Almost a year went by, and and an outside observer looking at it would have said, David had committed the perfect crime. He had sinned, he had done this, and he got away with it. And the God we talk about, the God that we talk about we love, he was either asleep at the will, or he decided to give David a free pass. But things are not always as they appear. Next week we will look in more detail of this story of David and Bathsheba. Because I think it's actually important to look at this story a little bit backwards. And that's what we're going to do. Now, I want to jump because there's a little footnote that's just a single sentence that happens at the end of chapter 11 that we will look at next week. And this is what it says in verse 27 at the end. He says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing he had done displeased the Lord. What is the point? David had fooled everybody else, but he did not fool God. God always settles his accounts. Listen to me today. 
If there's anything that I hope that you take away today is that God is alive and well and he is real, but yet at the same time he will settle his accounts. God had waited patiently for a year because God doesn't always settle his accounts at the moment that we think he will. He don't necessarily do it at the end of the month or the end of the year or even the end of a decade, but he does settle them. How do I know? Well, look at Galatians chapter 6, 7. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Those are sobering words, folks. We have been seeing David as many things, but today we see him as this, a sinner. And it's not to glorify that. It's not to put that on a pedestal because the truth of the matter is we all sin. We all sin. We know that. God realizes that. But here's the thing. You see, what concerns God is when we sin and when we are confronted with our sin, how do we respond? When we look in the mirror and we realize who we are, we realize that we have failed God in this thought, in this choice, in this thing in our lives, then what? This morning we're going to learn from the story how God deals with his children when they sin. And at the same time, we're also going to learn how children should deal with God with their sin when it's revealed. And so I want to start here, and then we'll jump into the text of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. The first thing I want you to see, and it seems very simple, but you and I must personally realize this fact of our sin. I must personally realize this fact of my sin. Now, before we jump into this, let me just get your attention here because we've talked about this all the time. If you're a guest with us here today, you hear me talk about this all the time. We don't like to look at sin. We don't like talking about the word because we care so much about appearances that we're afraid what people will think about that. And that might be you here today. And I, I'm just asking you, please engage, lean in today. We look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 12. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. If not, it'll be on the screen. It'll also be in the YouVersion Bible app on your smart device. I see the glows on your faces. I'm just kidding. That was a smart device joke. 12.1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, there will be two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Stop right there. So who is Nathan? Nathan is a prophet who was a member of David's royal court. He was one of his closest advisors. And I want you to notice in the very first part of this verse, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And that's a huge because it wasn't Nathan's idea to confront David. God sent him. He was sent by God. And here's the thing, when did God send Nathan? Did he do it right after David committed adultery? No. Was it immediately after David found out he was going to be a father with a woman who was not even his wife? No. Did he send him when it was immediately after he had Uriah murdered? No. Almost a year had passed. And God finally said, now is the time. When we look in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, we see David's heart poured out during this period. 
We know what he was going through because it's there. And it was David. He was in absolute misery because of what he had done. And what was amazing was God was using the conscious influence to affect David until he stepped in with Nathan. And so Nathan begins to tell him this story. He begins to tell him a story that David assumes is true. He says, hey, there's two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Let's pick up in verse 2. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. And he raised it and he grew up with him and his children. And it shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. So here's this story, and it's not too hard to see the symbolism in the story. Some people explain it this way, that the rich man is David, the poor man is Uriah, who he had killed, the, the pet lamb, if you will, is Bathsheba, the traveler passing by is sin. And I can imagine as David just hears this story, he, he's just literally on the edge of his seat listening to it and thinking it's a true story, assuming that it happened right here in his own city as the king. His temper kicks into high gear. It's kind of like Randy Macho Man Savage. The, the, the veins come out in his neck. Oh, yeah. His blood pressure rises to its top. Pulse rate shoots up. He is hot. Look at what happens in verse 5 and 6. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David knows that Nathan knows him well enough that this is not going to go unpunished. If David's to this passion about it, it obviously is bothering him. He's going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But what David didn't realize is he was taking that big old bait on the hook. He was taking that big old worm on the hook, hook, line, and sinker. And he's hooked. Look at the first part of verse 7. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. We don't read this, but I'm convinced all of that blood and the veins popping out in his neck at that moment before completely go out of him. And he's as white as a sheet because he realizes his sin had come to light. Isn't it amazing? David was so quick, so lightning quick to see the sin of this imaginary man, this imaginary story, but he couldn't see the reality of his own sin and what had happened. See, it's true for you and me too. It's true for all of us. 
the hardest sin for us to see is our own. The hardest sin for us to see is our own. Here David, he thinks he's looking through a window, but he's actually looking in a mirror. As he thought about this story, he thinks he's seeing through this window someone else's sin, only to realize that it was a mirror reflecting his own. Maybe you're here today. And if you were to really look in a mirror at your life today, and you see yourself, is there something that you know in your life that's not right? Is God speaking to you today in a very small voice? Is he nudging you today in this room because you know in your life right now you are making some choices that doesn't please God? And God is saying to you, I'm not pleased with you in this. Is there an addiction in your life that has got a stronghold? Are you playing with fire? And when I say play with fire, I'm not talking about a bonfire. Are you flirting with someone that you should not be? Are you having an inappropriate relationship with somebody at work that you should not be? Is it a neighbor? Are you got an addiction on the internet that you should not be doing? Because you're not fooling God. You can fool your spouse, you can fool your children, you can fool the person sitting by you in the pew today, but you are not fooling God. And it's a matter of time until he deals with you. It's just a matter of time. Now I'm going to get a little more medley, if that wasn't enough. Do you realize that even hatred in your heart for someone else is something that God's going to do with you about your sin as well? You see, we want to rank adultery. We want to rank things like that. that oh, man, that's awful. Do you realize hatred in your heart for someone else? Murder in your heart for someone else is just as bad. God is speaking to you about that because he wants you to respond and he wants you to repent and change of that today. And that leads me to this. Secondly, you and I must appropriately respond to what is the wickedness of sin. It is wicked. It is not good. I think as the church, we walk around and we're like, thank you, Jesus, I'm covered in the blood of the sin. And we're going to talk this a little bit more in a minute, but man, that is awesome. That is great. Woo! It's okay if I do this. I will be okay. I'm going to be forgiven. Let me show you something. Look at verse 7 and 8. 
And they said to David, you are the man. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why does, he, why does he say that here? I'm like, what is he trying to tell us here? What was he trying to tell David? And I think what the Lord himself is trying to show David is, listen, dude, look how wasteful your sin was. Look how much of a waste it was. And the point is, is listen, we don't have to do wrong to get what is good and right in our lives. I see so many people, they want to cut corners because, man, they're impatient. They want this so bad, and they will cut corners. They will do what God does not want them to do so they can have it. It's the very reason I think homosexuality is taking such a prominent stance today is because, man, they want love and acceptance so fast that they just blow right by what God is patiently asking them to wait for. If you will trust God and wait on God and believe God, he will always give you right what is right and he will always give you what is best. The devil is the master corner cutter. He's the master one. Why do we want to line up with that? If you've got to cut corners to get what you want, then you want, you want something that God doesn't want you to have. If you're having to cut corners, then you want something that God doesn't want you to have. David had to face up to just how wicked his sin really was. Yes, David committed adultery. Yes, David had conceived a child out of wedlock. Yes, David had murdered a man, but his sin was far worse than that. What? Are you kidding me, Russ? What's worse than that? Whenever you willingly and knowingly sin, you are doing far more than just the act of the sin itself. It goes deeper than that. How do you know? Well, in these next verses, God, through Nathan, he tells David some things that really, really solidified this. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Jump down to verse 14. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, and so the son born to you will die. What is the point? All sin, first and foremost, is primarily against God. It's not just that the sin is wrong. It is that it is against God first. How do we know? I mean, look right here in these simple three verses. For three things we see. When we sin, what happens first? We despise the word of God. We despise the word of God because even though we know what God says we are to do, we do just the opposite. We also, we disgrace the name of God. We disgrace the name of God because even though knowing God is wanting us to do right, we still will do wrong. 
And then we damage the reputation of God. That's why it's so important that we guard our hearts, that we make sure that our conduct is above above reproach. That is why sin is so wicked. And I'm not talking about perfection here, folks, but listen, if we walk around with this umbrella policy because we're saved, that we can do what we want to do, and we constantly sin and we make God look like a joke, then we wonder why the power of the church is failing. We have to realize that it's wicked, and we must respond accordingly. Now, let's give David some credit because notice how he responds to the wickedness of sin. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You see him face it. You see him own up to it. You see him, in a sense, repent here. If David had only done this immediately after he had sinned with Bathsheba, how things might have been different. And it took God through Nathan to force David's hand to come clean. There was a time when I was younger. My parents were here a couple weekends ago, and this was one of the stories we were reliving. You know, when your family comes, you got to relive all these stories, good and bad. And this was one when I was younger, and in the neighborhood, there was a young man by the name of Chris. Because we're online, I'm not going to say his full name. But if he's watching, he will know it's him. No. He would drive this go-kart, man, through the back of our neighborhood. And I'm telling you, he must have got his dad or somebody to soup this thing up because this thing would fly. It would be like, you'd look out the corner of your eye and be like, vroom. Driving through the streets in the neighborhood, in the subdivision. And I'll never forget, my mom looked at me one day as I was out there with her, and she goes, you are forbid to ever be near that thing, much less in it or on it. Pretty typical Russ fashion growing up. Things didn't register real well. So, of course, I had the day of the crossroads. I'm hanging out. Here comes Chris one day. He's got his go-kart. Y'all want to jump on? We'll go down the other part of the neighborhood. Sure. Well, it was only a two-seater, and there was like four of us. So, of course, me, I don't, I'm not the smart one. I don't get the seat. I get on the back. So I'm on the back of this thing, on the frame, hanging on the back of the seat, over the engine, riding through the neighborhood. Well, of course, Chris thought it was funny to see if he could throw us off. The speed this thing went, it wasn't real hard. So he did it at one point. We tumbled. Another time, we're back on it. Again, idiots, right? Back on it. Another time I slipped off because of the way he was driving. The only problem was this time, 
I went straight down on top of the engine, and that engine was very, very hot. You'd have thought the back of my arm was like a steak at Old Charlie's. So that day after we got done, and I was hurt and had to go back. So I was going to my grandma's house, actually, to, to hang out before my parents got off work. And I'm like, on the way, I'm like, what's my story? How are you going to hide this, right? And I'm in a ton of pain. So I get my story together that, you know, I fell and uh, somehow burned it on the trunk of a tree. <laughs> you know, at the time as a teenager, you think that's pretty smart, right? What else are you going to burn it on? Can't be a go-kart. So, of course, you know, my grandma was pretty gullible about anything. She always believed the best in me. I could about tell her anything. She'd believe it, right? But my mother gets home, and she's, you know, my grandma says, hey, Russ hurt his arm. You got to go see it. It's not very good. And uh, she comes over, and she's like, so uh, I, I hear you uh, burned that on a tree trunk. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, Mom, you're just not going to believe it, Mom. It was bad. And, you know, I just... <laughs> so finally she gets down and she kind of bends down at my level and gives me the right in the mother's eyes. Look me in the eyes. Tell me that you burned that on a tree. Mom, I burned it on a tree. <laughs> Son, you're lying to me. How did this really happen? I had to come clean. Mama knew best, right? Mama knew I was lying. I didn't come clean that day. Now I know that's a silly story of a stupid injury, but there was a consequence to that. There was a consequence that now my mother didn't trust me as much, right? But David came clean that day. And what was great about David, even though, he was, even though he was a great sinner, he was a great repenter. And he personally, as we see here, he confesses his sin. He doesn't blame somebody else. He doesn't whine about his childhood. He doesn't complain that, you know, he was the youngest of eight kids. He doesn't use the excuse that it was just, you know, in his genes or whatever. He understood his sin was against God and he made things right. He says, I've sinned against you, God. And he asks God's forgiveness and he repents and he turns away and he says, I won't do it again. Because there's a big difference than saying, oh, I'm caught versus I see my sin. It's Father God, I am sorry. I am broken. That is the way that we appropriately respond to the wickedness of sin. For some of you today, it's not too late to tell the truth. It's not too late to look in the mirror as God sees you and say, God, I'm sorry. I, I, this has to change today. This addiction has to stop today, and I will do whatever I can to get it stopped whether it's accountability, going to a counselor, pastor, whoever, I, I, I've got to get this stopped today. 
If it's a female that you work with, I will not go by her anymore. What are you going to do today to respond to that? And very quickly, there's one more thing. I must humbly receive the consequence of my sin. This is a hard pill to swallow. It's one that we don't like to swallow. But let's go to the story of David, because under the law, when you committed adultery, you were to be stoned to death. (laughs) When you murdered someone, you were to be killed. It was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. But notice how David's confession was met. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now that's interesting because David, in a sense, he deserved to die. He deserved it. But we see this, we see this, this beautiful picture that he would not die, this beautiful picture of the grace of God. And all through, all through David's life, from slaying Goliath to sparing his life against bears and lions and even a king that was trying to kill him, you see that every day David's life was, bra- was, was bathed in the grace of God. And once again, here grace is. And I'm so thankful that because of God's grace, we can be forgiven. And the guilt had gone. But listen, grief was still around the corner. Nathan told David what the consequences of his sin will be. Go back with me, verse 10 and 11. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of your other head to be your own. And this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. And again, the end of verse 14, the son born to you will die. If David had only stopped and checked the price tag before he bought If David had only thought about it, if he'd only stopped. And for you in this place, think about it. A discovered affair, one drunk night behind the wheel of a car. Stupid stuff on the computer because it gives you some sort of immediate satisfaction. A broken marriage, a ruined reputation. We could go on and on and on. How many times have we seen that any sin costs us way more than we want? Here's what David's sin cost him. It cost him when the infant son that was born to him, Bathsheba, it died. It cost him when his oldest son raped his own sister. It also cost him when another son killed that brother to avenge the rape. And it cost him when that same son usurped his father's throne and was ultimately killed. Do you see the chain of reaction? Do you see the things that sin does and how it multiplies? Forgiveness, forgiveness, yes, erases, praise God, the guilt of sin, but it does not remove the grief of sin. Hear me, hear me this morning. If there's nothing else that you get, why is this true? Why can forgiveness erase the guilt of sin but not remove the grief of sin? 
Because even though forgiveness removes the spiritual consequence of sin, it doesn't remove that personal, relational, or physical consequence of sin. I've seen it time and again. I've seen people, when you sin, God will forgive you, but you may still lose your job. You may still lose your marriage. You may still put your children at a distance. You may lose a friendship. There are always consequences that come with it. Always. I know this sounds harsh, but there has to be consequences for two reasons. One, there has to be consequence because we serve a holy God that requires it. Second, God uses consequences to bring us back into the relationship with him that we ought to have. It's the very reason why the psalmist 119 verse 67 said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Think about this. I think it's amazing that we never read again about David ever having a problem with adultery again. For the rest of his life, we don't see anything about it. And even though he is united with Bathsheba, I have to almost think, I, I wonder if she ever had to worry about David doing that again. I think David learned from it. I think it changed him. If you and I today, we can't miss these lessons. And the greatest lesson that I think we can take from today is the words that David heard that brought him peace and joy and forgiveness to his heart. And it's in verse 13 where it says, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. It had such great meaning because... Another translation puts it this way, says, the Lord has laid your sin on another. As I think about the vault children following obedience of baptism today, they did that because they know that their sin was laid on the shoulders and the death of another, Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that we can't pay that debt, but Jesus can. And through his forgiveness, we can have the power over sin every day. And so the ending message of the story is, man, you know what? If you're guilty today, if you're in this place and you're guilty, whether it's something as far-fetched as adultery, murder, or maybe you're just in this place and you're living life without God, Jesus has never been your Lord and Savior. He can save you today. You can be forgiven of your past. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Do you need his mercy today? Will you renounce your sin in this place? It doesn't have to be public, but it can be public. <laughs> Will you renounce it today? It's what God wants from us, and it's what we should want as well. I want to ask us to bow our heads, and I want us to just reflect and respond to this.
this morning. Will you look in the mirror right now? Will you look in the mirror this morning? What is God speaking about to you? What do you see? Is there something you've been trying to hide in your heart, in your mind, your thoughts? What is God speaking to you about? Do you need to be saved today? Jesus died once and for all for your sin and is ready to forgive you of your trespasses. If you're to say, Russ, if I'm honest in this place, I'm dead in those trespasses today. I, I do not know Jesus personally. I'm not walking with him. I have not asked him to save me. If that's you today, I can't think of a better day than to give your life to him you can walk in his freedom and forgiveness if that's you today I would love to talk with you more about the decision I'll be down front here you come there's others in this room that would love to talk with you however you feel comfortable greatest decision you'll ever make in your life maybe you're here today and you're like Russ I've got some things I need to acknowledge in my life some things that if people knew, I would be embarrassed. And it's not about the embarrassment. It's about you responding to what God's showing you today. How do you need to respond to your sin? This altar is open as an altar of repentance. It always is. You come. For some, they need to come because it marks this is serious business with God. And I come and I put my face on, these, on this altar, on these steps, not because it's magical, but because, man, I need this altar of remembrance to remember this today. You come. Be broken before God. Be changed. We have prayer counselors that would love to pray with you. If you've got a, a decision or you've got some concern to pray about, you come for prayer this morning. What is God showing you? What does he want to do in you? When he looks in the mirror, he wants you to be forgiven and to walk in that forgiveness, not guilt or shame. How will you walk out of here today? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. May we respond in this place today. May we be moved. May we be challenged. If we haven't already been, Rod, to respond the way we need to respond all over this room right now. In Jesus' name.